does such a good job. When I was a, a wee little ass, my sister and I used to have a game where we would mix drinks up. And we started with, you know, the catch, not ketchup, the, um, it's really loud, milk and orange juice, which makes me gag. We would have soda and Tabasco sauce, salt, pepper. We would just mix things up and dare one another to drink it. And this went on for years and years and years. In fact, I called her yesterday. I said, Heather, you remember we used to play this game? She says, oh, of course I remember that. Well, y'all play the game too. You just do it with the gospel. And you might not realize it, but I want to show you how disgusting it is and how much better the gospel is, unmixed, unfettered, and unchanged. So we're in Luke 5, verse 33, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but shears eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with him? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put in fresh wineskin. And no one, after drinking old, desires new, for he says the old is good. It's really a, a pretty straightforward text when you unpack it. The application, you're going to have to do a lot of the legwork here, on your own. But what's going on is Jesus has saved and healed the paralytic. Jesus is called Levi. Jesus is having a party with Levi in his honor. Jesus's honor, not Levi's. And a bunch of sinners and tax collectors and, and various problem people in the eyes of the world are there. And the Pharisees cannot stand that Jesus eats with these people. But they also don't understand how Jesus's disciples don't fast. And notice the they is not just the Pharisees and scribes, it's John the Baptist's disciples. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But, but let me ask you this question. Why did Jesus' disciples not fast? Let me ask it this way. How many of you fast regularly? How many of you are confused by fasting? Do you feel like you should fast? but you don't know why to fast or how to fast or actually want to fast, but you think if you somehow fasted it would be pleasing to God so you don't know what to do so you just don't fast. Is it just me or you? <laughs> Used to mess me up. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, well, it depends why you're fasting. And this is the point of the text. It's a great question. Thanks for asking. How many fasts does the Bible require? I'll give you a hint. It rhymes with un. It comes before two. Nice. Jerry's gone. It's Yom Kippur. It's the only required fast. But you'll see people fast throughout the Bible in various times. For example, Isaiah 58, Esther 4, 1 Kings 21, Joel 1. It's recording, so you can listen and chase those down. But what happened was the Jews, religious Judaism, not Old Testament, not the Old Testament, but the institution of Judaism made required routine ritual fasts, which is why in Luke 18, you'll see the tax collector praying with the Pharisee who says, thank you, God, for not making me like this tax collector. I fast twice a week 
Mondays and Thursdays were required fasts. Do you know when you're supposed to fast? Yeah, you ever talk to Christian people? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, Jerry, I had a rough week. I was fasting all week. You know, I was petitioning the Lord as I was fasting because I'm so holy. Well, when are you supposed to fast? I'll give you an example. You find parents in the hospital with their child. And you go and you're, you're spending time with them. How often do you go, hey, let's go out and grab a bite? They're not concerned about food. They're so consumed with something else, food doesn't cross their mind. Fasting occurs before God in a pleasing manner to him when you are so concerned with something of the Lord that food doesn't cross your mind. You ready for this? You get no bonus points with God for fasting. Do you understand that? Cheryl's point. Someone told me they fasted 40 days once. They said, I, I, I fasted 40 days. I said, well, first, if you did, you ruined it because you told me. Huh. Second, you a lying dog because Moses and Jesus fasted 40 days. And you ain't Moses and Jesus, meaning those were unique circumstances. And God uniquely called them to it. So don't go fasting 40 days. All you're going to get is sick and maybe dead. Keep fasting in a proper order. This isn't about fasting, but it's about ritual religion. The Pharisees were trying to add to the gospel by ritual fasts and prayer. And they say to Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? And John the Baptist's disciples were fasting like the Pharisees. Why? What was John's baptism of repentance? Most of John's disciples weren't saved. They were trying just to prepare for the coming of the Messiah by, by repenting of their sins. So how do you repent of your sin? You, you turn up your religiosity. And you all know you do this. You got a scary circumstance coming up. So now you start getting your prey on. God, oh, the plantar fasciitis may have to be addressed surgically. I pray, God, that you would alleviate my affliction. And I will not eat for five days. So you'll do this for me. You all know you do it, right? God, I, I was doing something I shouldn't do. Who I might get caught. But I'm going to fast and pray for five days if you just make it go away. And then it goes away and you're like, all right, get me a Big Mac. Right? Y'all do, you turn up your religiosity to earn God's favor. Why, why? Well, we're going to move on a little bit. So John's disciples, they're just trying to turn up their religiosity to, to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. They're missing the gospel. Most of them are. And if you don't believe me, you can go read Acts 19 after church, and you'll find way, way deep in the book of Acts, I think it's Acts 19, let's check. Because if it's not Acts 19, I don't want you reading that. Pastor made this up. Yeah, look at that. So Paul's in Ephesus. And it happened while Paulus was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland of the country, came to Ephesus, there he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we haven't heard there's a Holy Spirit. They have a southern accent there. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, What? Into John's baptism. These are disciples of John. They, they still don't fully understand the gospel. It was prepare for Messiah by cranking up your religiosity. 
So Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? And I love Jesus' answer. And it really boils down to this. How could you be fasting at such a time as this? That they understand who they were, who I am, why they came, and who they've become in me by grace through faith. It's not time for a fast. It's time for a feast. Do, do you understand that? You know when Paul says, rejoice always? Well, what are you rejoicing about? Who you are in Christ, who Christ is, why he came. That you were spiritually blind and now you can see. That you were spiritually poor and now you're rich. That you were spiritually captive and oppressed and you've been set free. How could Levi fast? The man just went from death to life. He's going to have to feast. It's not a time for fasting. Interestingly, Jesus says, there will come a time when they'll fast in those days, he says. When the bridegroom is taken away. I think that's prophetic. I'm being a, a, making an assumption here. But when you get to the end of Luke and you'll see, you know, road to Emmaus or Jesus appears to the disciples, you'll notice that Jesus presents them with food or requests food from them. I believe they were fasting because, not like they're trying to earn God's favor, but they have no concern for food because they're traumatized. But notice Jesus is referred to as a bridegroom. I'll tell you what you can read later would be Ezekiel 16. It's like 60 verses about the unfaithfulness of God's people, but the faithfulness of God who would come as a, as a bridegroom to save and restore and be wed to his bride fully. You remember the book of Hosea? Hosea had a wife named Gomer. Wonderful lady. Wonderful, wonderful lady. If you don't know Gomer, Gomer in the most polite terms was a woman of the night. She was prolific in her business and fertile. And, and, and Hosea was able to enjoy the fruit of her labor in the sense of children who had wonderful names. If you're ever going to have a child or know someone that is and you want to give them some name recommendations, read, read the book of Hosea. Don't really give them those names. But what that book is, it's true historically, but it's also illustrative of we are adulterous spiritually before God. But Jesus came to make clean and adulterous people so that we might be prepared to be his bride and he the bridegroom. It's talking about our identity in Christ. Do you see what's going on here? So then Jesus closes this with three parables, if you will. So the first one is, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. What's he saying? You can't smack the gospel onto Judaism. It doesn't fit. It doesn't match the pattern. And again, he's not talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about religious institutional Judaism, works-based righteousness, rules and regulations. Then he says, and no one puts new wine into an old wineskin. And every time I read this now, I'm... I'm taken back into time to a scary discussion, but no one puts new wine into an old wine skin. If he does, a new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. When you made wine back in this time, you put the wine or the grapes into a wine skin. It was an animal skin. And it would be fresh because fermentation expands and the fresh skin could expand as the fermentation took place. Old wine skins were stretched out and dried. If you put new wine into an old wineskin during the expansion, the wineskin would tear, the wine would fall, it would be ruined. Jesus' point. 
you can't fit the gospel into Judaism or any other world religion. Now, the last one gets a little confusing, but it shouldn't. It says, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. A lot of people get tripped on, well, what is that talking about? Here's what it's talking about. If you're drinking deeply of the dregs of Judaism or any other religion or human secularism, whatever you want to call it, you're going to have no interest in the gospel. No one, after drinking old wine, false religion, desires the new. They say the old's just fine for me. Meaning no one on their own turns to Christ to be saved. Now, now here's the, the issue we're, we're dealing with. What do we do with this? I gave you a whole bunch of information. Maybe some of it was interesting to you. Maybe some of it wasn't. I'm not particularly concerned about that. But I want to talk about how does this information point to Christ and the beauty of the gospel. And there are a lot of different ways we could go about this, but I'll just try to do it in two simple questions for us to think about. Why would the Pharisees want to add to or take away from the gospel? was a power play, right? They wanted to hang on to control. Do you know, as a Christian, you are called? You ever meet a doctor who's on call? What does it mean when the doctor's on call? It looks something like this. I still think of pagers. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting old. It's like, oh, they do this. You ever been out to dinner? Your friend's a doctor. You go out to dinner. Like, hold, hold on. Hello? I'll be right there. I got to go. You ever have that happen to you? You know, when you're on call, it means you're under the authority of someone else that you're submitted to. For a doctor, it's a hospital. For an IT person, it's a tech server. For, you know, you can put it in a variety of ways. But as a Christian, when you're called, it means that you are fully under the authority submitted to Christ. There's no compartmentalized Christianity. There's no part-time Jesus people. But the problem is, we don't like to be under the control of someone else. Dirty little secret, you're under his control anyway, he's God. But we have this rebellious streak. The Pharisees, unfettered, we forget. Do you see what goes on? So we try to add to or take away from the gospel to hang on to a remnant of power. You have no power. Romans 28, you know you like the promise that God uses all things for the good of those who love him. But it actually says, for those who are called... You see that? Under his authority to be conformed to his image. The other issue is just straight forgetfulness. How could you improve on the gospel? Talking to brothers and sisters in Christ here. How could you improve on the gospel? Do, do you think you can find more joy? More security? More comfort? More purpose? More meaning? How, how do you think you can improve on the gospel? But see, what we forget is God is perfectly wise and we is perfectly dumb. We think we're pretty wise. We want to hang on to control and, and we forget. So what happens is the Pharisees, they didn't forget. They just repressed. But as Christians, we forget. We forget who Christ is, who we are in Christ, what he saved us to, what he calls us to, and why he calls us to it. And, and unless we remember that, this is what we do. Some people... Christians here, add to the gospel. What does that look like? Well, I got to fast because I got to earn God's favor. I want a new job 
And I'm, Lord, I'm going to fast for five days to get a new job from you. And I'm going to crank up my religiosity to earn your favor so I can get what I want. Don't. Please don't do that. You know why? First, it doesn't work. Second, it's sinful before God. You, now, I'm not saying don't fast. In fact, I am saying you should fast, but you should fast appropriately. And if you're so grieved with sin that you're coming before the Lord repentant of your sin and desirous for the Lord to convict you of it and to turn you from it and to make Jesus sweeter and better, that would not be an inappropriate time to fast. Do you understand that? But you do not fast to earn God's favor because that's adding to the gospel. The gospel says you have God's favor by grace alone through faith alone. Legalism is where you go with adding to the gospel. Rules and regulations. But what's the opposite thing of legalism? It's still legalism, but it's the cheap grace side of it. Well, you're taking away from the gospel. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And you say, no, Jesus, I love you, but I'm under grace. So remember, ha, I don't have to keep your commandments. Lachayim! Like Jesus forgot. It's, it's taking away from the gospel. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, with no works. That's not the gospel. James talks about that. Ephesians talks about that. All the scripture talks about that. But the point is that you forget who Christ is and who we are. We think human wisdom is above God's wisdom. And what I want you to think about here is where in your life are you mixing things with the gospel? Where are you adding to the gospel to try to earn God's favor and get from God? Or where are you taking away from the gospel in pursuing things that only God can give? Joy, security, comfort, purpose, meaning, etc., acceptance, right? Where, when, you, when you take a relationship other than that with God and try to find meaning and acceptance and love in that relationship, you will be sorely disappointed because the gospel says the only one who can truly and fully love you as you were made to is God himself, and through Jesus he does that. Amen? You can't add to or take away, you distort the gospel. It's far more disgusting than orange juice and milk mixed, to get, mixed together. That's just so vile. But we do it all the time. Where in your life are you mixing the gospel? Can I give you one more? The Pharisees had a problem with Jesus and his disciples eating with sinners and tax collectors, right? We saw that last time or two weeks ago. Do you know they were on to something? All through the Old Testament, you will see God's admonition not to eat with sinners. You don't believe me, do you? Remember the Old Testament dietary laws? Don't eat pig, don't eat the hoof stuff, don't mix this and that. You know why? It was not for sanitary reasons. Do you think God, who made all things, gave manna to his people in the wilderness, gave them water from a rock, Ah, but we cannot allow them to eat the pig. I cannot keep it clean. It has to be refrigerated. I mean, really? What it was was fellowshipping with pagans, fellowshipping with people who didn't know God because you become like those you fellowship with. Who you feast with is who you become like. The Pharisees distorted it, thinking you would become infected with sin by lost people. No, you're infected with sin by birth. But you are affected by sin 
by feasting slash fellowshipping with lost people. I don't mean eating a meal with in our context. I mean living your life in fellowship, in intimacy with, investing your life into pursuing what they're pursuing will affect you. You'll become sin-affected. And here's what you need to understand. We're called to feast primarily on one thing and one thing alone. Do you know what it is? Do you know who it is would be the better question. His name is Jesus. But the world offers all sorts of feasts. You can feast on the idol of wealth. You can feast on the idol of health. You can feast on the idol of relational acceptance. You can feast on the idol of beauty. You can feast on the idol of vocational success. You can feast on the idol, you kind of get the gist. Or you can feast on Christ. And to feast on Christ, you feast with his people. You're fed by the word, empowered by the spirit, cared for by the saints to go out into the world. And listen to this now. As you feast with Jesus and his people to dine with sinners and point them to Christ because you were no different than they apart from Christ. Do you see that? But you won't do that if you're not feasting on the gospel. You won't do that if you're adding to or taking away from the gospel. You won't do that if you don't realize that Jesus is better. I feel like I could say a whole lot more, but I'll probably just ruin whatever I said, so I won't do that. Here's the takeaway. The gospel is totally incompatible with every other world system. Do you understand that? You cannot mix Jesus in with anything. But let me tell you, the culture we live in does a wonderful job of mixing Jesus in with all sorts of things. I'm, I saw an interview with a guy, a homosexual pastor, who is showing us, that's an actual page from my Bible, how God loves people just as they are and doesn't call people to anything but to love themselves. It's adding to the gospel. It's taking away from the gospel. It's a bad combination of both. Here's Jesus' point to the Pharisees. There's one gospel. If you add to it or take away from it, you lost the gospel. You have man-made religion, and all man-made religion tries to earn God's favor and keep God's favor, and Jesus' point is you cannot merit God's favor on your own. There's only one way to have God's favor, and that's for Jesus to earn it for you on your behalf. And the good news of the gospel also goes to the fact that you have no control over your life whatsoever. Even if you got every idol the world offered, they're just rubbish, junk, fake things. Listen, here's a promise I will make you, and if you get there, you can come back and say, how did you know? I know because God said so. If you earned $100 billion next year, you would be more miserable than you are today if you were trusting that that money would provide joy. Here's another promise. If you earned zero dollars next year, you would be more miserable than you are today, not because of your income, but because the income can never deliver joy. I have learned the secret, Paul says, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He was rich, he was poor. He was fat, he was hungry. But what he learned was Christ was what he needed. Christ is all satisfying. Christ is most perfect because he alone is perfect. The Pharisees got their religion on. 
Jesus says, oh, that's really impressive. Not. You can't earn God's favor. You have other subsets of the population that just say, well, God loves me as I am for who I am. There's nothing I need to do. You've totally missed the boat. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then Jesus shows up. And he reads from a scroll in a synagogue a long time ago. You remember that back in Luke 4? That was 4, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's reading Isaiah. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him, and then he says to them, today, this scripture's been fulfilled in your hearing. Then they try to beat him up and throw him off a cliff. Remember that? And he goes, nope. And he goes, Pete, let's go back to your house. Let's go for some brunch. And they show up at Pete's house. He says, Rabbi, my mother-in-law, she's sick as a dog. She's dying. Between me and you, I'm okay with it. But my wife, she's giving me grief. Can you do something about it? (laughs) Jesus says, Peter, we got work to do. Goes over to Peter's mother-in-law. Come on, hop up. All of a sudden, she gets up. No recovery. She's cooking food. She's serving people. And you know they're all sitting there going, what? What? Remember that? Jesus, next day, comes back. Pete's fishing. Caught nothing. Tending the nets. Pete, put me on the boat. I want to preach the gospel to these people. All right, guys, in the boat. They go out in the boat. Preaches the gospel. Says, let's go to the deep, Pete. We're going to go fishing. Pete's going, we caught nothing. I'm the fisherman. You're the carpenter. What's it? Oh, whatever you made my wife happy. Let's go. They caught a bunch of fish. Amen? Come back in. Got a, got a, uh, a guy coming through a roof. You know Pete's there. Guy comes in the roof. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Pete's going, ho, ho, ho. He's not saying this out loud. He's thinking it. But so are the Pharisees and say, ha. How can you forgive sin? Jesus says, how can I forgive sin? Because I'm God. Watch this. Get up. Paralyzed man gets up. He has the power to create, the power to forgive sin. He's God. He says, Levi, let's go. Follow me. Levi follows him, showing us not only does he have the power to forgive sin, but whose sin he forgives. Whose sin? Sinner's sin. Those who are sick. Those who recognize their spiritual poverty. Pharisees say, well, why why aren't your disciples fasting? Jesus says, why wouldn't my disciples fast? They were dead and they're alive. They were lost and they're found. They know who I am, who they were, and who they are in me. It's not time for a fast. It's time for a feast. Oh, they'll fast again because I'm going to die, but after I die, I'll be back from the dead. Do, Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's putting before us the beauty of the gospel. That by grace alone, through faith alone, we have eternal life through Christ alone. And the evidence of us having life in Christ alone is we live like those who are called, who live under his authority and submission because he causes us by a creative miracle to be made anew, to desire to love him and serve him and follow him. In the flesh, the battle is adding to or taking away from the gospel, manipulating the gospel, using the gospel, trying to make the gospel more attractive to people. You cannot 
You need not. What you need is to recognize the supremacy of Christ above all other things. Now, I can only do this exercise in my own life. You have to do it for your own. So I'm going to leave you with this. You do your homework or throw it away. I would recommend doing your homework. Where in your life are you adding to the gospel or trying to add the gospel to something else? Where are you trying to get Jesus to give you what you want or to do what you want as opposed to desiring to do what he has saved you to, trusting that he knows better? One last peripheral point and we're done. Do you notice I asked Jesus why his disciples don't fast and pray? It says, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Notice Jesus' disciples, they pray. And they're known for the fact that they pray. And Jesus will make very clear as we go through the necessity of prayer. But when it comes to fasting, is there a necessity to fasting? There's an appropriateness to fasting. But we must fast appropriately. Just like we might, must do all things appropriately. And the only appropriate thing we can do, first and foremost, is to trust in Jesus and be saved. And then as we trust in him and walk with him and stay focused on him, we see that Jesus is better than all things. Here's, my friends, what the, the Christian subculture around you is offering. The gospel mixed up with stuff. Except the problem is in the flesh, it looks pretty good, it smells pretty good, it tastes pretty good, but it will make you sick as a dog, and it will cause those who are not really saved to think they're saved until they meet Jesus, and he says, away from me, I never knew you. Don't drink the fabricated, mixed-up, distorted gospel. Drink the true gospel. How do you know what the true gospel is? Gaze upon the truth of Christ. Feast on Christ. Feast with God's people. And as you're fed, go and dine with sinners and point them to Christ just as someone did for you. Feast with Jesus and his people. Dine with sinners and point them to Christ. Fast appropriately and pray without ceasing. Let us pray. Father, I just thank you that you are exactly who you say you are. And Lord, I pray that you would allow each and every one of us to appropriately be fearful of you. For those who do not yet trust in you, Lord Jesus, I pray that it may be a fear of terror, a recognition of your holiness, of the fact that you will deal with all sin, of the terror that every single thing we have done for our entire lives is seen in broad daylight before you. Every thought and intention of our heart is known by you. Every click on a computer screen or tablet or phone is not recorded by Google, but by you. And we will one day have to give an account to you. And apart from Christ, the verdict will be death and hell and punishment. And Lord, that should scare the boots off of us. For those, Lord Jesus, who have not yet trusted in you, I pray that they might read Ezekiel 16 and see the reality of who they are on their own, but who you are and why you came and what you invite them to be in you. Unmerited, of which they are totally unworthy on their own. 
but that they would see the incredible love you have for them in that while we were still sinners, Christ, you died for us. That, God, you loved the world so much that you sent Jesus to save us. Your only begotten Son, the Son to be sacrificed so that all firstborn sons and all people would not have to face your wrath. And, Lord, that they would turn to you and be saved that they would drink deeply of living water, that they would feast abundantly on the bread of life, that they would taste the sweet flavor of the true gospel and as such desire it more and more as they feast with you and God's people. And Lord, for those of us who've trusted in you, I pray that we would be reminded of who we were on our own, who you are, and how we became saved. And that through that, we will be reminded of what you have saved us to, what our identity is in you, and all of the promises you have to those who are in Christ. God, in, in, a, in a world, in a culture where people chase ridiculous idols, please have us to be aware of where we chase them and to stop. In a world that literally destroys marriages and health and all other relationships that that turns their kids over to various idols in the pursuit of wealth and provision and security. Lord, would we hear your words where you tell us to not worry about what we will eat or what we will wear? Lord, if you clothe the flowers and feed the ravens, how much more so those who've made, you've made in your image, who you saved by your blood, will you care for and provide for? Lord, may we not ever, ever add to or take away from the gospel, but to rest in the fullness of truth found only in the gospel, that we are more loved than we could ever comprehend, that you are more holy and just than our minds could ever wrap them around, but you who are just are also the justifier, that we are the bride of Christ, that we are your children. We are sons. We will reign with Christ. We who are the scum of the earth have been exalted to the highest position that created beings can be put in. We are children of God through Christ. Remind us, Lord, of who you are and who we are and how perfectly you will care for us. So, Lord, when we fast, may we fast in a manner pleasing to you not trying to earn your favor, but fasting because we have your favor. Lord, when we pray, may we pray in a manner pleasing to you in light of the truth of the gospel, not thinking of you as a senile old man who forgot what he was supposed to do, but the all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God who sees all and controls all and does all things perfectly to be able to cry out to our Father, help, knowing that you will help, to cry out for comfort, knowing that you will comfort, to cry out for provision, knowing that you will provide, not based on what we think we should do, but knowing that you know perfectly what to do. And Lord, may we point people to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the treasure of great worth, the pearl of great value, uh, the jewel that we saw in a bag this morning. Not that one, but pointing that way. Lord Jesus, help us. Holy Spirit, make yourself more precious to us than anything else in the world. And remind us that we are more precious to you than anything else in the world. 
Lord, blow our minds with your grace. Remind us of your mercy. And plant us firmly in our identity in you. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.